We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Friday afternoon show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, you just have to dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we've got a lot going on. Uh, Busy, busy weekend. And it's going to be a really cold one, I'm told. Sunday, we need to be tough and get to church in spite of how cold it is. Uh, Tonight, I'm going to be teaching um, Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to get the first six and a half verses, I think, uh, to, to they're going to go into just the first part of verse 7. Uh, so that's tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch that at calvarysa.com live stream. And then on Sunday, I'm going to be in one of my favorite chapters, Acts chapter 26. Uh, I think I'm going to get through 19 verses. Uh, this is Paul's testimony as he is um, sharing before Festus um, one last opportunity before he goes to Rome, where, of course, we know that's where he will eventually die. So all of that's going on. And really quickly, a programming note. Monday, it is a holiday, so our program will not be live. We will be doing a rebroadcast on Monday, and we'll be back with you live on Tuesday. That is, if I survive these frigid Arctic temperatures. Let's get to questions while we await your phone calls. I'd love to close the week with your phone calls. Sasha says, um, Pastor Ron, how can you be so sure that Christianity is true? There are so many other expressions of God. I don't think anyone can be sure until we die and find out. Sasha, uh, your response is not uncommon. But you see, this is a response from somebody who's never really tried to find out. 
If you would dig in, the Bible says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So our responsibility ought to be to seek him with all of our hearts. Seek him and he will be found by us. But we've got to do the seeking. And it's such a cop-out. And usually, and Sasha, I don't know you, so this isn't personal, but usually we, we wrestle with these kind of questions because we're doing something that we don't want to stop doing. And it's just easier rather than say, you know, that's wrong. I've got to stop doing it. It's easier to say, well, how do we know what's true? And when we ask that question without ever having tried to find out what's true, well, that's when the question is dishonest. You know, Sasha, one of the things that people have a problem with me, uh, this happens to me frequently, um, they are put off by my certainty. I know Christianity is true. I know because of what the Bible says. I know because of what Jesus has done in my life. Nobody else could have done it. I know because of the stories, the transformations that I've seen over and over and over and over in my almost 33 years of being a Christian. So I know for sure. Now, if that's true, all of the other expressions of God, to use your words, all of those other expressions are not expressions of God at all. There are only two spirits, the spirit of God and the spirit of everything opposing God. And any other religion, no matter how nice the people are, no matter how sincere they are, any other expression is from the enemy of our souls. It's a lie. It's, it's deception. And so your responsibility, Sasha, is to find out And that's all I ever challenge anybody to do. I don't expect people to take my word for it. I can share with them what God has done in my life. I can share story after story. I could give testimonies of God's faithfulness. um, An hour wouldn't be enough to do it on the program. But it's your responsibility, Sasha, to find out what's true. Clearly, the Lord is knocking at the door of your heart. Clearly, you're interested in what's true. But you've got to be interested enough to find out. And the way you find out is just to dig in. Find out if you can trust the Bible. Find out if what the Bible says is true. And in the process of that pursuit, I promise you, God will demonstrate to you exactly what Jesus said when he said he is the only way to the Father in heaven. It would be a tragedy Sasha, if the only way we could find out is after we died. I mean, what value is it? You go to stand, and by the way, everybody's going to stand before the Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But imagine what a tragedy it would be if when you were sure Jesus is Lord, it was too late. That's why God makes it clear who he is. And usually the only reason people don't find out is that they're spiritually too lazy to really dig in and find out. So I love the fact that I know for sure and I can trust in God's faithfulness. Uh, by the way, Sasha, in maybe three weeks or possibly four, but, but more likely three weeks, uh, I'm going to be teaching on Sundays in First John and the whole purpose of the book of First John is that we might know that Jesus Christ really is who he said he was. And, of course, we know he claimed to be God. 
most important question you'll ever deal with, Sasha, is, is Jesus who he said he was? And you've got to find out. And if you find out, I mean, if you're looking with a genuinely sincere heart, here's what I can promise you. He will reveal himself to you. Perhaps you can start reading the Gospel of John or First John. First John's a little easier, a little shorter. Um, but I promise you, if you really want to find out if Jesus is real, he will reveal that to you in his word. Here's a question, another cynical question from William. If God is a God of love, why do Christians mistreat LGBTQ people so terribly? Uh, William, I don't think we treat LGBTQ people terribly at all. Now, they might think we do, but that's not really true. They're just sort of deflecting. And when you say we treat them terribly, it's because that we say what they're doing is wrong, that it's sinful. And that's an expression of really loving them. You see, the difference between you and me, William, is that I want them to be in heaven, and you don't seem to care. I want them to be in heaven. And that's why it's necessary to tell them the truth. How unloving, how cruel would it be to know somebody is living a lifestyle that is going to end up with them spending eternity in torment and not telling them? Now, it's not just LGBTQ people. Imagine somebody whose life is filled with pain. And because you don't want to offend them, you're afraid to tell them, hey, I have an answer for you. I can assure you that that pain will go away. I can assure you that God has peace available for you. We've got to tell people the truth. And William, regardless of how you choose to frame it, telling LGBTQ people, that what they're doing is wrong, that it's sin, that it separates from them God, from God, is not unloving at all. It is the most loving thing that we can do. It's never loving to hide the truth. Now, is it true that there are some professing Christians who uh, treat LGBTQ people poorly? Sure. But don't blame Jesus Christ for that. That's flesh. So, we express our love by telling them the truth in love and doing everything that we can to provide an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus Christ. That's the way, the only way, William, to approach people who are in sin regardless of what their sin is. Nick asked the question, I know you say that God is good, but why is there so much suffering? He could just fix things if he was good. Well, um, I, I had a question similar to this the other day, Nick. Um, God's going to fix everything. You know, when he made the world, it was perfect. After the sixth day, he made Adam and he made Eve. And he said it was very good. In fact, perfect doesn't begin to describe what God's creation was intended to be. But sin entered the world and ruined it. And since that very moment, God has been reaching out to sinners in his infinite patience. He's been reaching out to sinners to, to, to draw them out of their sin, away from condemnation for their sin, and draw them into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we know God is good. We know he made everything perfect. But why do you blame God for what man has done? 
There's a lot of suffering in the world. Jesus promised us that there would be suffering. People that hate God are going to suffer. It's that simple. Now, we all suffer to one degree or another. But as a Christian, Nick, I have the privilege of knowing that when I'm suffering, Jesus is there with me. He who suffered infinitely greater than I ever will. He's right there with me. You as an unbeliever, you have to suffer alone. God could just fix things, but if he fixed things right now, Nick, people like you would be cast forever into hell. And God is patient. First Peter says God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. And that means he still has time to reach out to you. Let me repeat something, Nick. A time is coming. I personally believe that time is coming soon. But a time is coming when Jesus is going to stop all of the suffering. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more tears. No more crying. No more wailing. No more injustice. But that time has not yet come. So here's my suggestion to you, Nick. While there's still time, Cry out to God. Get right with God. And let him come alongside you in whatever it is you're suffering. The world has a lot of suffering, but that's because the world stands in opposition to our God. So, Nick, I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877 877- 630-KSLR, that's 630-5757. Samuel wants to know, Pastor, what is your primary philosophy of ministry? Um, Samuel, mine is pretty easy. It's teach the word, let God do what he's going to do. I try to stay out of God's way. I have one part in, in this ministry, one role. As the pastor, my job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The way you equip the saints for the work of ministry is by being faithful to teach the word. And then God does the rest. You know, Samuel, one of the neat things that uh, the Lord has demonstrated to me over and over and over is that uh, I really don't have to do anything. Nothing depends on me. Um, Tonight, as an example, I'm going to show up uh, at 7 o'clock and I'm going to be prepared to teach Colossians chapter 2, the first seven verses. That's all I have to do. And then God, the Holy Spirit, does the rest of the work. And that's my primary philosophy of ministry. It's not something that man has to do. In fact, it's something that man cannot do. So I do my part, and God has always been faithful to do his part. Tonight, I get to start the Bible study with Paul saying, um, declaring how much he's struggling uh, literally contending for those in Colossae and Laodicea. And you see, that's a pastor's heart. We struggle for people, and the only way that we can provide answers for people who are struggling themselves is in the Word. I try really hard not to interject my opinion. Now, there are times when I will say, um, and I always announce it, that this is my opinion. I believe it very strongly or or I feel very strongly about this, but this is my opinion. I make it clear. And I think it's a considered opinion, a studied opinion. But the reality is that uh, I just teach the Word. 
That's what happened in the first century church. They clung to the apostles' doctrine. That's what the word is. It's the doctrine of the uh, original church. That's the, the, the model it was given for us. And we do that. And then when I'm faithful to do that, it's an amazing thing to see what God himself will do. It's an amazing thing. So that's precisely what we do. We simply teach the word and let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. And of course, he's the one testifying of Jesus. And one of the really great things about uh, about that philosophy of ministry, Samuel, is that there's no pressure on me at all every week to come up with something clever, to come up with something that's entertaining or even interesting. I simply declare the word and the Holy Spirit working through his living and active word. His word never returns void. And so I just do my part. You know, I haven't had to spend one minute thinking, what am I going to say on Sunday? What am I going to say tonight on Friday? I just go to the passage of Scripture that we're teaching, and God does the rest of the work. And the privilege that we enjoy is being surrounded by so many great, great God stories. We've seen lives transformed that are almost indescribable. There used to be an old candy commercial, uh, indescribably delicious. That's what it's like when you teach the Word, because the work that God does is indescribably delicious. So that's our primary philosophy. We want to balance between spirit and the Word. And they can't be disassociated one from the other. So that's our primary philosophy, and it really removes the pressure. You know, Samuel, I have friends who are pastors, and they do it other ways, and they're wonderful, faithful people. But but every time I'm thinking about their, their work for the Lord, all I can think is, wow, Lord, you sure put in my heart the right way to approach this, because if I had to get up week after week after week with a fresh sermon idea, if I had to get up with with a, a, a bunch of sermon illustrations, if I had to do a bunch of research to find magazine quotes, I wouldn't have lasted five years. I'm not that smart. I'm certainly not that creative. So all I have to do is open the Word and teach it. So I hope that helps. Here's a question from Vicki. She says, I have a hard time forgiving myself when I sin. How can I get over that? Vicki, I think it's just a matter of having enough faith to trust what the Bible really says. Now, again, Vicki, this isn't to be taken personal. But consider how arrogant it is to think that the perfect God of the universe, he can forgive you but you're unwilling to forgive yourself. Think about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you are having a difficult time forgiving yourself, you're under the condemnation of the enemy, and you need not be. God has already defeated the enemy. God has already defeated. Uh, The Bible calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us night and day. And all you're doing, Vicki, is you're giving him an opening to continue to accuse you. 
You know, if he's accusing you before the Father in heaven, Jesus is interrupting everything he says. Innocent, innocent, innocent. But when he's talking to you, you're thinking, guilty, guilty, guilty. I've disappointed God. How could I do such a thing? And again, I think it is arrogance, human pride sort of perversely expressed. It's arrogant to think that your standards for you are higher than God's standards for you. So, Vicki, here's the question. Do you have enough faith to simply believe what God said? And then every time the enemy lies to you and that condemnation starts to come again, all you have to say is, wait a minute, I've already settled this issue. I know I'm forgiven. I love the fact that the Bible says our sins, Jesus speaking, our sins are as far from us as east is from west. If you keep going east, you'll never hit west. You'll just always be going east. So your sins are gone, thrown in the deepest, darkest ocean. And for you to keep dredging those sins up from that deep, dark ocean doesn't seem to be a very wise activity. Thank you, Vicki. appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to our first phone call. Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I, um... There's a phrase, well, there's word, words that say, the Holy One. And when I read that, it reminds me when I was up in Northern California. I was real late at night, and I got out of, the, out of a car, and I looked up, and it was back when you could see all the stars. And they were so powerful, and God's creation was so, so amazing that it almost made me fall backwards. Yeah. And when I read those words, the Holy One... It, it just makes me want to fall on my face in worship. And I wondered if you would just talk about about those words, the, the, the Holy One. God is the Holy One. And, and that's all I had. And, and, I ho- and I do hope it doesn't get too cold this weekend, just for you <laughs> and Mama Paula. Yeah, thank you. Just pray that I won't be a wimp. That's my problem. <laughs> thank you, Cindy. Okay, bye. You know, when, when the, the Bible refers to God as the Holy One, and remember, he's not the Holy Three, he's the Holy One. God is one God in three persons, and he's holy. And just the, the thing that, that I'm in awe of, Cindy, is that I can talk to him at any time during the day, every day. I can be in his presence, even if I'm sinning with a genuine, I'm sorry, Lord, I did it again, please forgive me. I can be right back in his presence and have access to the power of heaven. That God is with me and I have the opportunity to minister to the people that he loves, people that, that, that he trusts us with here at Calvary Chapel. It is an amazing thing to consider and I, I think we forget often that God's overarching attribute is holiness. So the Holy One, it's really important. You know, Cindy, we were talking about seeing the stars. Uh, when I went to Bible college, it was at uh, Lake Arrowhead, California. And uh, it was about 5,500 feet in elevation. And um, we'd go up there. There was a high school called Rim of the World High School. And uh, we'd go up there, on the, me and some of the other Bible college students, we'd go up there at night because it would be completely black and you'd look up at the mountains and, and the stars were just amazingly clear. And then I would think, God, you know 
every star's name. You've given them the name, but you know every star's name. In the book of Job, we're said told that God gives them the, their, their path or their route in the sky so that they don't crash into one another. And when you can look at that, you can see it visually. It's just a picture of the, and this is a word I always make up, the bigness of God. And it just, to me personally, communicates how big God is. But all of that stems from His holiness. That's why the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sort of sums up the doctrinal portion of, and, and maybe doctrine is the bad choice of words, but the the um, Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to, to, to tell us how to get to heaven if we don't believe in him. And he sums it up at the end of chapter 5 and verse 48, and he says, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I think too often, Cindy, we forget just what perfection means. God is so holy that no one can look upon him and live. God is so holy that he can't even contemplate sin. When Jesus was tempted, he was tempted by sin, but he was never tempted to sin. Now think about that for a moment. Just like you, just like me, was tempted in all ways by sin. But he was never tempted to sin because he's holy. And his desire was to do only that which pleased the Father. So when we think about his attribute of holiness... We can include justice. We can include purity. And when we do that, then we're going to be in a situation where we truly can focus on walking in holiness, the Apostle John says, because he's the light, we must walk in the light. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week. We'd love your calls and questions on the second half of our program. 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, our final 30 minutes of this week. Here's a question from Jeremy. Why doesn't God heal today just like he did in the New Testament? Jeremy, when Jesus was here, now you'll notice as you read through the Gospels, um, his miracles are referred to as signs and wonders. In fact, Jesus would do this miracle and the religious leaders would say, what sign will you give to authenticate that you have the authority to do these things? And, and the signs and wonders, we have to think of it in those terms. A sign points to something. And Jesus' miraculous healings pointed to him being the Christ, the Messiah. Now, we already know. We don't need a sign. I get frustrated doing this day and age of, of GPS. I watch people who know exactly where to go. I mean, they've taken this route many, many times. They know exactly, but they still put it on GPS. So why do you put it on GPS when you know where to go? 
and and I know it's habit, but the 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 idea is if you know where you're going, and and we know what Jesus has done. We already know who He is. We know what He's done. We, Jeremy, have the greatest sign of all, and that's an empty tomb that validates everything that Jesus said about who he was and why he came. So in the Old Testament, um, you know, when uh, modern medicine obviously wasn't a fact of their everyday life, Jesus healed incurable diseases. People that couldn't walk could walk. People that were blind could see. People that were crippled were suddenly given strength in their legs. Jesus is simply advertising, this is who I am, and this is who you should expect. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison and getting a little bit discouraged. And the reason he was discouraged is because he expected, like most Jews, that that the Christ, when he came, would take care of Rome and establish a Jewish state, and they would once again be uh, their own authority. And John, in prison, understandably, was getting depressed and discouraged. He said, should we send another? And Jesus wrote back, or are you the one, or should we wait for another? And Jesus sent the message back. You tell him that the lame can walk, and the blind can see, and the deaf can hear. And John, of course, would know that that's exactly the things that the Old Testament prophesied about the Christ when he came. And he understood then that, no, Jesus is the one. Now, Jeremy, God still heals some people. But it's not the same then as it was now. We, as I repeat, we don't need signs because we know exactly who he is and what he's done. We have all of his promises authenticated. We have all of his promises uh, given to us in, in his word. So we don't need a sign pointing to Jesus. So that's why there's not these mass healings. Now, don't get fooled by faith healers. That's all phony. Understand that people get sick and people die. Now, I'm going to tell you something, Jeremy, that might be a little embarrassing um, about me. I beg God for the power to heal. Now, I'm not talking about the power to heal in crusades, not even in church but but I'd love to walk through children's hospitals. I'd love to be able to do that. And just a simple prayer, people get healed. I don't want any attention for it. I could just hear the screams of joy, parents and children together, just miraculous. And, and imagine the glory that God would get. I say, Jesus, you knew that people took you for granted when you were doing those signs and wonders. You don't mind if they take you for granted again. Let's just do this. And and I plead with God to do that. Now, that's not a normal thing. Uh, and, and he's certainly not given me the ability to do that. But even if he did, most people wouldn't believe, even if they were healed. So, Jeremy, that's why... He doesn't do them today like he did then. Again, I want to clear there are still gifts of healing that are given. Uh, in, in Corinthians, when Paul is writing about the gifts of healing, he's not talking about a gift to heal given to one person. He's talking about the people who are sick who get healed. They receive the gifts, plural, the gifts of healing. 
Now, let me also, maybe out of the other side of my mouth, Jeremy, there are places in the world where Jesus still does these kind of things because they need a sign. Truth is, we don't need a sign now. Signs, wonders, miracles wouldn't save anybody. But there are places in the world where people have no knowledge, very little knowledge of him. Where leaving their family religion might cost them their lives. And Jesus does still do these kinds of miracles. Blind people see. Crippled people walk and run. So he still does some healing. But it's not like when Jesus was healing entire villages, entire cities of people. So I hope that makes sense to you, Jeremy. Thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Gregory has a question. Should Christians read the Gospels of other people that are not in our Bibles for more information. Now, Gregory, I'm I'm assuming you mean like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel according to Thomas, um, those kind of things, the Gospel of Barnabas according to Barnabas. Um, the answer is no. Those are not inspired. And in fact, those um, Gospels are written by men, um, certainly not Barnabas writing it or, or not Mary Magdalene writing it, but men ascribing these things to them. And they are in contradistinction to what the Word teaches. So so really, they cast doubt on the real Word of God. Now, here's the thing I think we need to focus on, Gregory. We have 66 books in our Bible, 66 books that God wrote. Now, humans were the agent, but it was the Spirit of God pushing the pen to men. Any other book no matter what its title is, is written only by men and has very limited value. Now, I think in some cases, the Gospel of Thomas is not one of these cases, but I think some of the other extra-biblical accounts have some value in terms of historical value. But spiritually speaking, they have no value whatsoever in terms of determining the path of our lives or the way we should walk. So, Gregory, no, don't waste time on them. Again, if you are really super discerning and you spend a bunch of time in the Word, um, then I, I never try to discourage people from reading. If you can discern right from wrong, uh, then they might have some interest. But certainly they have no value whatsoever when it comes to saving you, when it comes to instructing you how to walk in your life. And again, you're going to have to deal with the contradictions between what those extraneous so-called gospel accounts um, say uh, and what your Bible says. So um, you be the judge of how discerning you are, but no, there's there's no value uh, spiritually of reading the gospel of Thomas or Mary Magdalene or Barnabas or any of the others that were written. You know, I always thought that maybe those authors meant well, um, but but they're so tied into Gnosticism and and um, uh, heresies that were were um, being strongly opposed in our Bibles. Uh, so I'm not so sure. Here's an interesting anonymous question. 
I have heard you say publicly that you love Jesus even more than you love Paula. Doesn't that hurt her feelings? Uh, Anonymous, no, it doesn't hurt her feelings. In fact, it makes her very comfortable and very secure in my love because the only way I can love Paula the way that Jesus wants her to be loved is with his love in me. And if I put Paula ahead of Jesus, well, if that were the case, then I wouldn't be able to to love Paul at all because I've proven in my life before I got saved, I've proven that the best love that Ron, and my my nickname was always Ron the Jerk, Paula was always poor Paula, married to that jerk. Um, Ron the Jerk didn't have the ability to love her. Ron the Jerk was selfish. Ron the Jerk was consumed with what made him happy or what made him feel satisfied. Um, and, And Jesus changed all of that. So I can promise you this, if I were to say, publicly or otherwise, Paula, I love you so much, I love you more than anything or anyone in the world, including Jesus, that's how much I love you, you know, people might think, well, that's a goosebumpy moment, but it would be a terrifying moment for Paula, because that would mean that I'm not loving her with the love that Jesus wants her to be loved with. So no, it doesn't hurt her feelings at all. And anything or anyone, any human relationship that comes before your relationship with Jesus Christ is a relationship that separates you from him. It's an idol. Not a statue, but an idol. Let me also say this. You know, often, and I've had a couple of unequally yoked marriage questions or dating questions this week, um, when when a Christian comes to me, and I, I have this happen frequently, when a Christian comes to me and says, I'm in love with somebody, but he's not a believer, she's not a believer, and I think God brought him or brought her into my life, and I think they'll get saved. I always tell them this. If you make this decision, the only thing you're admitting is that you love this person more than you love God. And that offends some people. I don't care. I mean, it's certainly not my intent to offend. But but that's the reality. If God says, don't do it, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And yet we make choices all the time that are in contradistinction to, to the choices that he wants us to make. And we do it because we love someone else. We love ourselves more than we love Jesus. And so Paula is really, really comfortable and secure. Paula just texted my producer with an amen with three exclamation points. So praise God for that. So uh, she's pretty secure in my love for her. It's about time. It took me a whole bunch of years to get to that place. 340-9585, Frank says, why would God make people with disabilities? Frank, God doesn't make people anymore. Please understand this. And this is something that makes so much sense and it's so easy when you understand that God made Adam and he made Eve. After that, God stopped making people. And the birth process then took over. And when sin entered the world, then sin corrupted that process. Uh, women, um, I, I guess, were supposed to have have babies very quickly. You know, one of the effects of the of the fall was a curse. Well, you, you'll have a lot of pain in childbearing. 
and and of course every woman who's had a child understands that um but but it's the birth process we have sex women get pregnant and they give birth to babies and because we live in a fallen cursed world disabilities happen now a lot of times those children with disabilities are great great blessings and God has gifted some people um, with the ability to, to, to nurture children and love them regardless of those disabilities. But God can't be blamed for that. So, Frank, God's out of the people making business. Um, we do that, and the people, those who are disabled, who grow to love Jesus Christ, um, they're going to be healed one day. They're going to be healed. Johnny Erickson Tata, who I think most of you in the audience would recognize her name, uh, she was a paraplegic from a, an accident that she had as a teenager. And um, now she is about my age, I think, and um, has all kinds of physical problems. She's had breast cancer and she's had uh, heart issues and 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 yet she's completely paralyzed. And she's lived a remarkable life, a remarkable life, uh, serving God with great joy, even through the middle of the, the obvious difficulty of her life. And she'll tell you, and she says this in her testimony, that the closeness that she has with God is a result of her disability. And if it would require sacrificing that intimacy with God to be well, she wouldn't want to be well. Now, obviously, she'd like her body to be healed, but but she's valuing the intimacy that she has with God as a result of her disability over just having a life that's easier to navigate. So I hope that makes sense. Charles says, Pastor on Psalm 51 says, God doesn't want sacrifices. What does that mean for us? Let me read the verses 16 and 17. Um, God says through David, You do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Now, Charles, this is important to understand uh, sort of where David is coming from. Psalm 51 is his famous psalm of repentance. This is a, a, a David is confronted by Nathan the prophet uh, over stealing Bathsheba and having her husband uh, Uriah killed. Um, and, and now that he's confronted with his sin, David is repenting. And this psalm is his repentance. This is a psalm where he can say, uh, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew within me a right heart. And the only way that can happen is if he repents, he's acknowledging his sin. And when it gets down to the verses that you asked about, Charles, um, you know, David, I'm sure, was making sacrifices to the Lord the whole time he was hiding his sin. And so coming to God in genuine repentance, he realizes that all the sacrifices in the world made no difference at all in his relationship with God. He says you don't take pleasure and burnt offerings. Isaiah says the same thing. He says, you know, your feasts and your new moon festivals, my soul hates these things. 
Because what God wants is us to come to him with broken hearts. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Happy is the word blessed there translated. And, and, and um, you know, mourn. We mourn over our sinful condition. That's the way to be blessed. God, I'm a sinner. I don't want to do this anymore. And then there's a remedy for that sin. Well, David is finding that remedy. And he's realizing that there's no amount of religious ritual. There's no amount of offering. There's, you can shed all the blood in the world. But none of that matters if your heart is far from God. And David, Psalm 32 says that um, when he tried to stay silent, in other words, covering up this sin, his insides were just wasting away inside. So his conclusion is, God, this is the sacrifice you want, not an animal. You want me to be broken. You want my heart to be broken and contrite, repentant. If I do that, David is saying, then I can once again be right with you. So Charles, that's what he means. The same thing in our culture. We can say, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I never miss. I read the Bible. I pray. None of that matters to God if your heart's not right with God. Religious exercise means nothing. What matters is the condition of your heart before a God who loves you so much that he sacrifices only son for you. Uh, anybody in this audience who is sort of actively involved in sin, anybody, spend the weekend in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Trying to cover it up only creates more pain, more conflict, more opportunities for the enemy to destroy. But genuinely repenting, David was able to walk with God again. The same thing is true for all of us. Here's a new person, Lucky. says, Why couldn't Jesus' disciples cast out the demon in Luke chapter 9 when they had done it before? Well, Lucky, um, the, the, the lesson there is very important for us. You remember earlier, earlier, uh, Jesus had given them power and authority. Um, and it's not the, the, the normal word for power, dunamis, uh, which is supernatural power, uh, but, but the authority or the right um, to, to cast out demons. He gave them authority over the demons and to heal the sick. And so they would go out. They went out in their, their ministry two by two, and they all came back rejoicing because even the demons, even the demons trembled at the name of Jesus. And they had success in it before. But Luke 9, you remember, is when Jesus, James, John, and Peter were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they come back, the, the, the disciples who had been left alone. Some, uh, a father brought his uh, demon-possessed son to them to be healed. And they thought, well, sure, I can do it. No problem. The problem is that they didn't have the authority of Jesus. You know, we think, well, I had it before. I can do it again. It's just so man, isn't it? I mean, we men do that kind of thing. Oh, I did it before, no problem at all. Well, what Jesus tells them is, no, this is a different kind. 
And you can't rely on power you had before to do something in service for the Lord today. And so they were presuming upon the power of God because they give, God had given them that authority, that power once before. And this time it didn't work. And they were perplexed by it. So Jesus, we know, cast the demon out. But the disciples learned a lesson. I hope it's the same lesson that we all learn continually. Is that what we did for Jesus yesterday doesn't matter at all. If we're going to confront spiritual warfare, if we're going to confront problems, if we're going to minister to the people that God loves, we need fresh power every day. Now, we have that, of course, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us need to be baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter. The terminology you use, you just need to want it and get it. But that is not a one-time-only process. I have people tell me, well, I'm filled with the Spirit, I speak in tongues. That doesn't matter. Have you surrendered your heart to Jesus all over today? Because that's the only way to have access to that power. It's the only way. And every time that you walk out of the door in the morning, in fact, let me go back a little bit further. Every time you get up out of bed in the morning, if you're going to be kind at home, if you're going to be a good husband, a good wife, a godly husband or wife, a godly parent, a godly employee, then before you get out of bed, you ought to say, Jesus, I went to bed empty. Fill me afresh today for whatever it is. That's simply reporting for duty every morning. And if it's your heart to be obedient to the Lord, he will give you the power. And anything and everything you encounter throughout that day will be enough for the Lord. And you'll be able to do whatever it is that he's called you to do. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. I think we've got about a minute left. See if i got a minute question. Uh, yeah, here's one from David. Uh, did Jesus have to go to hell after he died? Um, he went to the abyss. Luke 16 talks about a place in the center of the earth. Uh, but he, he went there on a specific mission. He went there to lead captivity captive. Those who were in paradise after Jesus' death and resurrection, he led them to heaven, to the place of the, 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 the abode of God. Um, if your question, David, is because you're in a prosperity church that says Jesus had to go to, to, to hell and suffer and be the first born-again Christian, that's heresy. So no, Jesus simply went to set the captives free. Can you imagine what that moment was like for those Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others when the earth began to shake and this indescribable light began to blind them and Jesus came and opened the gates and they were set free. David, good question. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember, we will have a rebroadcast on Monday. Have a great Martin Luther King Day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you on Tuesday. Bye-bye. Spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh,